This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are talking about Warren Buffett-style investing, even into the teeth of the storm known as GameStop. Ooh, and read it, yes, and and get rich quick, <laughs> and and Bitcoin going to fifty thousand now yeah. with with Elon Musk putting one point five billion dollars of Tesla money into Bitcoin. That was breathtaking. I have never seen anything like that before. That was that'd be the equivalent of putting one point five billion into gold. You know, I mean, it's just like what. I mean, it's not an asset that you can judge. In fact, we should start with that. We're going to get to Lee Lu here today, but let's start we with are. Bitcoin real quick. That's a, Go ahead. That's what do you want to deal. say about Bitcoin? Well, just that it's it's impossible. I was on uh, Clubhouse yesterday, and there's this whole app that's been around for about a year now, um, where basically you can live, listen into a conversation with really brilliant people, and then it's not recorded. It's just there and gone. And I was listening to Brian someone's last name I've forgotten, who is the founder apparently of Coinbase or the CEO of Coinbase. I'm not sure. In any case, he did a history of the whole thing. and a history was asked of Coinbase. Of Bitcoin and that kind of stuff. Oh, of like cryptos. And somebody asked him a question, how would you put a value on this thing? How do you, what's the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? Hmm. And it was like, what started off like uh, that. And then it went to, well, it's the price anyone would pay, just like stocks. That's oh, the intrinsic value. I'm uh, like, oh, really? There's one you can sink, sink your teeth into. Right, because as you guys know from listening to hundreds of these podcasts, that we disagree rather strongly with that point of view. We think stocks are very special in that they produce cash flow. Businesses produce cash flow. And I should say businesses, not stocks. Yeah. And we own a small piece of businesses when we buy a stock. So businesses produce cash flow if they're a good business. And that's how they get valued. How, do, how would you know what to pay for a business? Well, what cash flow is it producing over, over the years? And what would you be willing to pay in order to get that cash flow? That's, that's how you'd value the business. And something similar like that goes on with bonds, right? They produce cash flow. And you can mm -hmm. choose what, what, what do I want to pay to get that cash flow? And there can be quite an argument about what to pay, certainly, but it's not whatever somebody wants to pay. That isn't really the end result of long-term investing. It is, on the other hand, what just happened with GameStop and really yeah. bolsters this guy's argument a bit. It's right? quite. It's actually quite interesting because there is so much opinion out there right now that it is whatever anybody else would pay. And yes. there's actually a lot of evidence <laughs> in real life that right now that is true. So really, in the short yeah. term, I would say that is actually a real thing, that it's whatever somebody will pay you for that 
that stock, let's say, not related to the business, but really as a stock, right? Which is like very similar to cryptocurrencies. But in the long term, that is it's, not it's, how it, it works. In the long get, term, it has to be pegged to some real world, real life production. That's what we we agree with Ben Graham, you know, in the in the short run, the market's a weighing machine in the long run. Yeah. Sorry, in the short run, it's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine, meaning just exactly what you said. It's mm. that the emotions of the market, whoever's most afraid or whoever's most fearless or whatever, will set the range of prices in a market, including for Bitcoin or gold or stocks or whatever. But what makes stocks unique is in the long run, the market will price things according to a reasonable range of, of, uh, of value for its long-term cash flow. And that is axiomatic to Warren Buffett investing and Charlie Munger. You might mm -hmm. disagree with it, mm -hmm. but you're taking on Buffett and Munger and, and Graham and Gates and, and uh, 90 years of, of successful investing. You're, you're challenging that yeah. and saying that, no, uh, it's not, that's not the way it is. What I think is so interesting about cryptocurrency is very, I was going to say very similar to the whole GameStop insanity but maybe not so maybe exactly the same as the whole GameStop insanity it feels very much like people wanting to be able to I don't know if this is quite right to say but like control their own destiny like have something that they are choosing to have power over that's separate from a government like most currencies until now have all been linked to a government to uh, a fiat a you know, a military behind it. Um, and these currencies aren't. And it, if, to me, it feels a similar or maybe the same vibe of like, here's why we're so excited about it. It's separate from that. It's separate from the idiocy we see day in and day out with various governments. And we like it that way. You know, I feel like there's a vibe of that. There is. And I I think what, what Brian was saying is go buy some crypto go go buy some bitcoin and, and you will suddenly have a whole different feeling for what it what it is um in terms of its security in terms of its uh, anonym anonymity from governments and and, yeah. and when when you see the united states printing dollars like it's printing now followed by europe followed by switzerland followed by canada followed by australia followed by everybody um in order to keep the parity between currencies you're watching a massive and historic devaluation of the currencies around the world. And and the Bitcoin theoretically can't be devalued. It's got an algorithm that says, nope, you can't, can't get more out of it than there is. And there's a limit to it. And that's the trust that I don't have in the Bitcoin that these people do. Apparently, Elon Musk knows more about the people who've created it and trust them to not devalue his $1.5 All they would have to do to cost Elon Musk and Tesla $750 million would be to split Bitcoin in half. And it could be done just blink of an eye. All right. I mean, I just Is that actually that I, true? Do you know? I don't I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I don't know how you'd do it. Okay. Honestly. Maybe it can't be done. <laughs> I think I think it probably can't be done. I think that's part of the value probably of it. Probably can't be done. But but there's there's that outside of government control aspect to this that is extremely attractive when governments start doing the yeah, kind of thing exactly. that they're doing now. And the the thing that to me is confusing and the uh I don't know, 
the risk, I suppose, is that there's so many of them. I mean, you keep saying Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's just one. Bitcoin's right. just a popular one. Yeah. There's so, so many different cryptocurrencies. So again, it's like, which one's going to win? And I don't know. I, but I do think cryptocurrency is not going away. Like we're going to have some sort of cryptocurrency going into well, the future, I think. There's a there's a difference though between cryptocurrencies that are backed by nothing like Bitcoin and Ethereum and and the new kinds of cryptocurrencies, which were also being talked about in this thing last night, that are being produced by governments, by central banks. So China is starting to mm. experiment with one apparently. And these guys fully expect the United States Federal Reserve will have created a US dollar based cryptocurrency. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Which is just com presumably convertible to dollars, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's that's how you do it now. I mean, you you really can't buy very much with crypto, although Tesla's thinking of, of you can being able to buy a Tesla with crypto, yeah. which might make sense because you're buying a $100,000 car. You know, that's not a your, – your cost of the transaction will be, uh, you know, substantially diluted by the – total value of the purchase price that you're making you go out and try to buy a pizza with the cost of a bitcoin transaction you're not you're going to get crushed it'll cost you twice as much to do the transaction as it would to buy the pizza at least as as it was not long ago so it's the cost the actual enormous amount of friction in a, in a bitcoin exchange that keeps it from being a value a, a useful currency but maybe that'll change over time um but I'm going well, to take us straight into... Yeah, oh. yeah, that's what I was about to say. Uh, interestingly, Lee Lu, in his article, in his speech that we've been talking about, um, goes directly into different kinds of value and specifically talks about cash, treasury bonds, gold and silver precious metals, and then stocks, and which one has right. done the best over time using some research from a professor from Wharton. And I mean, it is stocks won by a country mile, by 10 country miles, like crazy. More than 10 country miles. Yeah, more than 10 country miles. <laughs> it it so was really So just let me amazing. say for people who are just listening to this for the first time and want to go find out what we're talking about, this is a speech by Lee Lu. You can find, he's an investor. You can find it on his fund website, which is uh, HimalayaCapital.com. And then go to publications. And then it's called... The Prospect of Value Investing in China. So if you want to go read it for yourself, that's where you can find it. It's available to anybody who has access to that website. And we talked about it a bunch already on a previous episode, and now we're coming back to the um, the various, what did he call them? I want to say forms of currency, assets, but that's not right. Assets. Assets. Yeah. So, so the to the point of Bitcoin, the dollar asset has dropped from being... Uh, well, he 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 put these on a chart. He didn't do this. Uh, Jeremy Siegel from Wharton did this, going back 200 years on these asset groups and looking at what they would buy today in the dollars of 1800, in the U.S. dollar of, of the year 1800, when the U.S. dollar, 20 U.S. dollars bought an ounce of gold. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that... 20 US dollars continue to buy that ounce of gold all the way till 1934 um, with a little variability right after the Federal Reserve Bank came in and started diluting the currency. But then the depression snuffed out all that currency and brought it back to par with where it was in 1800. 
So the U.S. dollar for 134 years of our history bought um, the same amount of gold for that whole time. And then in 1934, as we, t- as we discussed, FDR took in, didn't take in, he confiscated all the gold in America and then turned around and offered to spend U.S. dollars to our European allies if they would send us their gold. He would send them U.S. dollars at a at double the rate that he had just paid for them for the gold in the United States. So he bought the gold at $20 an ounce, and then he sold it at 35 or 40 or something in that range. So it just... He didn't sell the gold. He sold the dollars at $35 an ounce. So effectively, what he did is devalue the currency by nearly 50% overnight, effectively, in terms of what it would buy in gold. And then that devaluation continued almost without relief until this moment. And now, whereas you could buy a dollar's worth of $1,800 in 1984, you can now buy a uh, less than a nickel. And so, Lee Lu talks about it in terms of inflation, right. not so much devaluation, which right. I really enjoyed because that's exactly where we started this whole podcast and this whole investing <laughs> journey of mine, really, was With, learning about inflation. Oh, inflation can wipe oh. out my cash under my bed. Well, I didn't understand what inflation was, so... And it's really hard right now. This is one of the most difficult things for me right now in investing is knowing that last year they printed 35% of all the dollars ever put in circulation and what that's got to do to the buying power, right? But I mean, the point he makes is that what that does is that holding cash is probably the worst asset class you can be in. Yeah, we think of it as the lowest risk thing you can hold right? Which is where you started this whole podcast. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to do the low risk thing here. And now they're wiping out the buying power of cash. Now we're heading more towards Zimbabwe than the old United States from 80 years ago. So we now sitting in cash is painful. I mean, it wasn't so painful a few years ago, but now it's painful to sit in cash and wait for the market to move to a point where I really want to buy something. So you start to feel this pressure um, you know, I like to I like to keep a lot of cash on hand, and I know that Buffett's got to be feeling it, or unless, you know, he's well, he has nerves of steel because he's been here before. But he and Munger, I mean, Buffett right now has a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty billion dollars in cash, and he it's hates just, cash. It, it's just insane. And it's, <laughs> it's like just an insane why, number. Why isn't he buying something if he hates cash? And well, okay, he bought fourteen billion dollars worth of his own stock in order to put some to work, but. The answer is basically that he said, you know, every so often, every 10 years or so, we end up with a huge economic storm and it rains gold. And when it does, you've got to be ready with a big bucket, not a thimble. And a bucket for Berkshire is dozens of billions of dollars, not, you know, a few hundred million. So for you and me, what that means is if we were to act like Warren Buffett right now, we would load up on cash. We would have so much cash relative to any other asset that, you know, I would say probably we'd be 50% in cash relative to other assets that we own, other stocks that we own or so. And um, and the only stocks I would own right now, if I was thinking like Buffett, would be companies that I think are still more or less on sale. I think, you know, they've still got a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I thought Ulta was, you know, a bargain at 150 bucks, 
and would be something I'd probably be thinking about selling at 300. I might be exiting Ulta at, at around 300, which is, you know, ballpark well, where it let's is. let's go through some of the, the asset classes that are talked about in this article, because it's pretty interesting. So he says, over the 200 years, and this is the professor who did the research, over the 200 years, cash has lost, and this is U.S. dollars, has lost 95% of its value or purchasing power over 200 years. That's crazy. 95%. Well, that's what we just said. It, yeah. it's buy, it'll buy a nickel. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know. When I buy a nickel, 95% computes more for me. Okay. Let's right. say it multiple ways. Fair enough. With, Fair enough. So with if you could buy a hundred dollars, you could buy it for now for five dollars. There you go. There's another uh, <laughs> form of whoa, 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 understanding. Whoa. Now you just flipped it on its head. I think there. No, no, no. He's saying the purchasing power is five cents in the article. If you had right. one U.S. dollar in 1802, how much would it be worth today? It's yeah. worth five cents. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the. Um, the gold, silver, precious metals, that purchasing power with $1 200 years ago is now worth $3.12. So a three to four, three to four fold appreciation in 200 years. Again, by years. the way, again, this is post-inflation, right? Mm, yeah, good point. Yeah. So post-inflation, the U.S. dollar has been wiped out. So you, you effectively apply you apply inflation to it and it's wiped out the U.S. dollar. Now you apply inflation to gold, and we know gold went from twenty dollars an ounce to two thousand dollars an ounce, but it's only buying three dollars where it mm -hmm. used to buy a dollar. Yeah, exactly. All right, because of yeah. inflation. Yeah. Then bonds, bonds, just the, like the ten-year Treasury bond, have achieved a return of two hundred and seventy-five times their original value. Oh, sorry, that's Treasury bills are yeah, 275 higher, times right. their original value. Bonds are 1,600 times their original right. value. So that's the difference between short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates, right? So mm. bills are short-term uh, purchases of, of bonds, and, and bonds are longer, 10-year, 20, 30 years. So they're 1,600 times more than what a dollar bought in 1800, which is really good, yeah. right? After inflation. Yeah. After really inflation, good. that's that's pretty amazing. And that's about, what is that, 500 times more than gold? For those, for those of you who are sitting here looking at Bitcoin, I think this is coming back to the point. In other words, if Bitcoin is the modern replacement of gold as a storehouse of value, except that the government can't get at it and it's liquid and you're anonymous and it's the whole thing, if that's the case, then why would you expect Bitcoin to do anything different than gold did? That's a fair point. Right? It's definitely so a here fair you go. point. Bonds, I mean, the answer is that they see it doing something different than what gold is doing. But again, in the long run, which may not. Which means, I think, I don't know. Are they getting... I'm not sure what that means other than people are just speculating like crazy in it and, and trying to guess what the value would be someday relative to gold, I guess. Or maybe it'll have some sort of value because of liquidity that's better than or, gold, I would think right. so. It's just, or it's just really high demand and low supply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, probably. Um, which is very dangerous for, right? In other words, Picassos are very high demand, <laughs> low supply. <laughs> yeah. Right? 
So maybe maybe that's well, maybe you would like everybody in a Picasso. Picasso. Yeah, I, I think guess. I would. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the price of Picassos has fluctuated really, really quite a lot. Um, and and by the way, I don't know if fine art has even kept up with bonds. I'm not positive after inflation. I think my guess would be that fine art would keep up with gold or other commodity type things. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, um, I don't know. But it here we go. Seem to have stocks. gone up a lot. So, okay, stocks. Yeah. Stocks. If you had one U.S. dollar in stocks in 1802, it would now be worth 1.3 million U.S. dollars. Nope. So if you just had, I'm going to restate that. If you had just okay. one dollar in 1800, not in anything, it's just a dollar in 1800, and then you put it into stocks. Oh, maybe that's exactly what you meant. I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's what I meant. Maybe that okay. didn't come out right. I, I think you did mean that. All right, good. So <laughs> theoretically, it would have if you just kept it there generationally. Yeah. It would now be worth a million dollars. Or if you're a magical person who power. lived for 200 years and right, you know, found the right. tree if of you're life. Yoda, if you're Yoda, yeah. you. Or if you're one of those time traveling people, I often think, what could I do if I could time travel backwards? Well, I wouldn't yeah. want to go too far backwards because I really like modern plumbing, but I could do a lot with my <laughs> I like knowledge. modern dentistry. Okay, that's a good one too. <laughs> so, um, so his point here by, Lee Lu's point by citing this research done by um, an academic is that stocks over a long period of time, very long, 200 years, more than our lifetime, has been by far, by huge amounts, the better returning investment. Right. So then he goes into so, why. By, by the way, let me just put that clearly. That's ballpark 330,000 times better in real buying power than gold. <laughs> All of you huge bit, Bitcoin fans. 330,000 times more. Um, and that's where I think you're going to run right up against a wall going 100 miles an hour with Bitcoin is that once it's fully developed as a, as a, even a currency, it, it, in my view, it has no more value to add. It's, it, it's done. So you're speculating, right, on a scarce resource, hoping it'll go up. And once it's up, um, then it should appreciate roughly at what gold did because it doesn't have any value add. It's not going to hang on your wall. It's it's just gold, you know? It's a, a store of value if the governments come and try to take it you away, right? It, it's in, in a yeah. time of great crisis. Otherwise, what good is it? I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting that know. you're comparing it to gold and not to currencies. Because it isn't a currency. You can't pay your taxes in it anywhere. But let's say you could, though. Well, if you, you could, can't pay your it, taxes in gold, by the way. Right, gold's not a currency either. Yeah, gold is a storehouse of value and a hedge against. So you your consider currency. a currency something that you can pay your taxes with? Yeah, I think that's kind of the classic definition. If you can't pay your taxes anywhere with this thing, you know, it's seashells on the seashore, basically. <laughs> you can try to pay your taxes in seashells, but they might not take it. <laughs> Ultimately, that gives the government a lot of power over whether or not your Bitcoin or your gold is going to be of value to you. And I just reference you back to 1934. If you doubt that, the government can come in and take that thing 
which you, in 1934, many people were in fact thinking it was better than, it was a better currency than dollars, mm. right? They were thinking of it in terms of that. And the government stepped in to correct that misapprehension very well, quickly. And I think, I think to that point, what Lee Lu then describes is his view on why stocks, companies have done so much better than these other um, assets is because it's linked to the GDP of the, of the country itself. And as inflation yeah. has gone up, so has GDP commensurately. And because of that, he sees that as, uh, as the direct influence on the stock market of that country and therefore the underlying investment of the stock. And I think actually that goes pretty much to what you were just saying. Like having a nation behind these assets actually matters and maybe a currency that doesn't have a nation behind it wouldn't have that same kind of long-term um really really a good asset thought. valuation and you could almost argue that this is a chicken and an egg problem or a cart and the horse it, it, it you know gdp is comprised of what these companies earn yeah right I mean, or, or what they sell even it's not even earnings it's what do they sell and that's a big chunk. Public companies are a big chunk of GDP, mm -hmm. as is the government, right? So those are the two big, huge components of GDP, and um, and so you you what Lilu is saying is that although bonds are very similar to GDP in the long run, in other words, they're tied very directly to GDP, stocks are better than GDP. In other words, stocks produce a higher return than GDP um, because historically there's a there's a sort of a um, a risk premium. There's a premium to own a cash producing asset. So you get a bump. If GDP is running at four percent, you're gonna get six to seven percent growth rate for stocks. And that little difference, not so little, over two hundred years, means that you know it'll outperform bonds by 700 times bonds and gdp will be outperformed by about 700 times hmm. which is a lot so yeah i think um one more thing though before we before we wrap up here hmm. and that is that what li lu was talking to these chinese students about was what you should invest in in china and hmm. he was basically yeah, saying true. Hey, you could buy the market, right? But where's mm -hmm. your value add? What do you, what do you, these are all students theoretically that are going to go be financial advisors and mm -hmm. advise the growing Chinese middle class. He says, yeah, you could, you could stick them into an index and here's how you'll do. But the problem with that is that indexes will go sideways for, in our history, for as much as 26 years of sideways index. And as he noted, you know, Keynes, this economist from the 30s, basically said, yeah, the market can be irrational longer than you have money. It can, it can continue to go down longer than you have money to short it, right, or to, uh, to go long in it. And that fact means that for most of us, it's not okay to think in 200-year chunks. Yes, right. in 200 years, right. it'll become super valuable. But yeah. in 200 years, we're dead. So... What can what asset should we be using? What asset should we be buying if we have 20 years? What what asset is that? 
And that's where he really launched into what we talk about all the time. So we're not going to have to spend a lot of time on it. But let me just summarize by saying, Lee Lu's view is that if you want a reliable return over that is reliable over, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 year stretches, then you must buy a small number of wonderful businesses. That is your only true investment that can produce very, very high returns um, with very, very low risk relative to any other asset you could have. And that conclusion, of course, is how he invests. It's where what he got from Warren Buffett, from Charlie Munger. It's what we teach you guys here. And it's really the bottom line of great investing is if you want reliable 20-year returns, there's nothing you can do better among those four asset groups than, than stocks. Now, you must be thinking like I am right now, well, what about real estate? <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> right? What about real estate? I know. So it's very interesting that real estate's rate of return. I was not thinking of that, actually. <laughs> I was. I was thinking, well, what about real estate? What about real estate? I mean, real estate's overall return, uh, unleveraged, right? Just apples to apples, because you could always put leverage into stocks, too. But it adds to your risk. So real estate's unleveraged returns over the last 100 years have been roughly about 4%. So 4% before inflation, which means they come out really pretty close to gold, which is not a surprise. I mean, why would real estate go faster than that? What, what are you doing? Are you raising the rents at 10% a year? Is that how you're increasing the value of your real estate? Um, and you know, some people are going to point to, you know, specific markets where there's been an enormous speculation like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or right now Bozeman, Montana on fire, mm -hmm. right? Bend, Oregon, people away from the big cities. And you can point to specific time periods where that stuff really took off and maybe it'll keep taking off for the next hundred years. I don't know. But in general, real estate in general has performed about like you would expect because it can only go up at the rate of inflation. That's how fast you can raise rents. In general, you can raise rents at the inflation rate. And you, you notice that by being a renter. You're, you don't see landlords jacking your rent at 10% a year in very many markets. <laughs> no. Not without not without a big a big legislation to put them on rent control. So, um, But in you can do other things with real estate that make it attractive. You can become an active manager of your real estate, which is not what you're going to compare to with, with stocks. That would be more like owning your own business. Yeah, you buying something, fixing it up, that adding sure. value in that way, in the same way you would with a business, yeah. really. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So those two things, I think, are a little bit off topic in the sense that you were looking for you know, passive investments. You don't want to be actually actively having to be in day-to-day -day management. Um, and if we got into that, then yeah, you could argue that real estate could be really phenomenal if you're willing to get very active, and so could owning your own business. Absolutely, go 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 to work for Chick Fil A and get a franchise. You're going to make some money, right? <laughs> so, um, in but in general, I think Lee Lu is one thousand percent right, and it's um, really worth reading. Very, it's really really yeah, worth reading. Us talking about it does reading. not represent uh, the deep the deep thoughts. No that are in this speech. So it's really worth reading. Yep. So go take a look at it, you guys. And, uh, and we will be back with you in a week talking about how to do this better. <laughs> the never ending quest. All, All right. right Thanks everybody. Bye. Until then time to go play. See ya.
Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.